Welcome to church. I'm uh, Pastor Scott. It's good to see you guys this morning. Sit down, Gary. <laughs> the mayor of Riverstone is ready to speak, right? Yeah. Pastor Scott. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Uh, it's great to see you here this morning. Welcome to it. This is the second week of Advent. Uh, this is the time of the year that we try to... All right. Uh, Chris is out of town today, so I'm going to be filling in for him. It's kind of strange to be saying I'm going to be filling in for my son, but uh, it's a privilege. It's a really honor to, to be able to do so. And being in the season of Advent, I've picked one of those topics for us to talk about um, because we are trying to really slow down and focus our hearts on what does this really mean? What does this really mean for me? How does it change my life? How does it have an impact uh, upon me beyond the month of December? And so we're going to look at that this morning and um, talk about the topic of hope. I want to show you a picture. This is what I call the scariest place on earth. Go ahead and put this up here. It's a very obscure little building that's uh, found up in South Minneapolis. And uh, I would consider this one of the scariest places on the planet earth. Now, what makes it so scary? Uh, does anybody recognize this building, by the way? Okay, it, uh, it's not a haunted house, okay? It's not full of uh, pictures or videos of atrocities. It's not a torture chamber, so to speak, that waterboarding doesn't take place in this room. Uh, what is in this room that's in this building is actually nothing except what we take into this building. Inside is a room called an uh, anechoic chamber. Go ahead and show the next slide there. There it is right there. Yeah. It is completely and totally silent. I mean, it is, it is scary. It's unbelievably silent. I know all the parents of small children right now are saying, sign me up, man. I'm in. Uh, can I just reserve that for the month of January? And uh, before you, you sign up, let me tell you a little bit about it. You know, sound is measured in decibels. And, uh, and we, we measure the sound in here to be sure that it's loud enough but not too loud. And so we, we hit around 85 to 90 decibels. And you get much over 100, you know, and can begin to mess with your ears. But the, the, also, when you begin to get really low, it's a very strange sensation. And so the sound that is measured in this room, and I don't know how they, really how they determine this, but it's negative 9.4 decibels. It's, it's measured in negative. In other words, this thing just sucks sound out of the air. It absorbs so much. And while we may think that would be really wonderful to go into that, I got to tell you, it's a it deeply, or I'm told, I've never been to it, never, 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 not sure I've even been in a quiet place before, but it is, it is so scary quiet that uh, it's very disorienting when people go into it. You can hear your heartbeat. You can hear your heartbeat. You can hear the air go in and out of your lungs. You can hear your stomach gurgling. And I know if I preach too long, I can also hear your stomach gurgling, you know, <laughs> or growling, that is. Um, you, you can hear the blood flowing in your head after a few minutes in that. And it, it is very dis disorienting. Somebody said if it got much quieter, you could hear air molecules colliding. But, but here's the deal. You really want to make it scary? Turn the lights out. Now you're completely disoriented. They say that the average person can only stand a few minutes of it that they have to sit down. Some people get nauseous or dizzy or completely. Well, the 45 minutes, they say, will drive you crazy, absolutely insane. The feeling of aloneness, of darkness, of silence, of isolation is absolutely overwhelming, and it can throw you into a panic attack. You see, why is that? 
We're not really accustomed to silence, first of all. But to be isolated without contact with others, to feel completely alone, to feel like I can't even find the door to get out of here is, is, is not natural. You see, God created us for relationship. He created us for connection with one another. He created us for connection with him. And so that's one of the things that made this whole coronavirus pandemic take such a toll upon humanity is because when the shutdowns took place, connection with other people ceased. Uh, schools were closed down. People weren't going to schools. Work was shut down. Even churches, you know, we couldn't connect together in church. Everything went on the internet, you know, Zoom. We, we kind of got Zoomed out. And, um, and I, thought, I thought during the shutdown, I thought, man, if the internet goes down, we're toast. You know, <laughs> what are we, we going to do? So it, was, it took a toll beyond the physical toll of the deaths that took place and everything else, which are very tragic, uh, was the isolation. So what happened in, in society is depression soared. Uh, antidepressant, use of antidepressants soared during this time because people felt completely disconnected and disoriented. In fact, I just read that in Japan, more people died in the month of October from suicide than have died from the entire uh, coronavirus pandemic in Japan. It, just in the month of Japan, uh, in the month of October, more people died. That's, that's tragic. So if ever, I think, Ever in our life, there is a time when a message of hope is needed. It's now. Amen. I mean, you know, it's been kind of a, what, a crazy year, you know, in so many, many ways. Well, the message of Advent, one of the real messages of Advent is that God is a God of hope, that the gospel is a gospel of hope, and that we are a people of hope. But sometimes we can lose hope. Sometimes we can be disoriented about hope and we can, we can lose attachment to it in our heart. So it's good to slow down and to pause and to remind ourselves, why is it that we are a people of hope? The people of Israel, they also knew what hard times were all about. If you read their history, they had some wonderful victories, but they also had some devastating defeats in their, in their experience and their history. They were taken slave and held in, in Egypt for, what, 400 years as slaves. They were attacked from every side over and over again. They were taken into captivity and the uh, uh, Babylonian countries, and uh, they were occupied by the Roman Empire. So God speaks to him, and he says, let me give you some hope for the future. And he portrays for them or promises them the coming of the Messiah. So when we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it's one of those promises that are given to them, but it's a promise for us too. And it goes this way, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then again in Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. When you fast forward several hundred years to the book of Matthew in the opening chapter in chapter 1 where the portrayal, the birth of Jesus is being portrayed and being explained, 
We find Joseph, a young man who's very, very disoriented himself at this time because suddenly he finds out that his, his fiance, who he's betrothed to, is pregnant. So we pick up in reading this, this chapter in chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His, Mary, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Now, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, pointing back to what we read just a moment ago. The virgin shall, shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew puts this footnote in here for us, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his, as his, as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she had given birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew explains for us what this prophetic name of the coming Messiah, this promise of hope, is going to be. And his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God's word to the suffering people of Israel, God's word to the, the, the nation of Israel during this time and his word to us is, you're not alone. I'm with you. You're not with, without hope. You're not abandoned. I am here with you. And so this morning, we're going to look at that and just kind of unpack that a little bit, what that means for us. So let's just pause for a moment. Let's pray. Let's open our hearts for the Lord to speak. Father, this morning, as we come, we open our hearts, we open our ears. We ask you to speak to us through the power of your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're hungry we desire to be those people who have hope and who exude hope in this world that we live in today. And so, Holy Spirit, come, speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I want to apply this three ways, what this message of hope means. And the first is that, that no one, because God is with us, because Jesus is with us, no one is beyond hope. And that's one of the messages of the Advent is that God comes to us. He approaches us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our darkness, our struggles, our problems. He comes to us, and that's what we're celebrating. It's not us trying to get to him or trying to prove that you are worthy of him coming to us. He initiates, and he moves into our world. So when we look at the, the manger scene, we see the invasion of God coming to earth, coming to, let's be clear, a sinful world, a fallen world. In Romans 5, Paul writes this, that God demonstrates or proves his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to eat with, to mingle with, to hang out with sinners. In fact, when you read the gospels, it's like he seeks them out. He shows up in town, he goes, where are the sinners? 
because that's where I want to go. It's not the well who need a doctor. It's those who realize that there's a sickness or there's a need in their life. And so he seeks them out. And the amazing thing is that he comes to live among us on the face of the earth, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be rejected, persecuted, falsely accused, unfairly judged, tortured, and ultimately crucified on the cross. And yet he still comes. Why? Because of his love for us, because of God's love for us. And it's not a hallmark kind of sentimental love. It's, it's not a sentimental kind of love. It's a sacrificial love Amen. where he says, I, want, I love you so much. I know what's going to happen, but I come to give myself for you. The Bible says, and probably one of the most well-known verses in the scripture is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But he so loved the world. What kind of world does he love? What kind of people does he love? A sinful world, a fallen world, a struggling world. He's talking about loving the people of the world. Think about the, the worst places we can possibly imagine. He says, I love these people. Not just the saints, not just the people who love him back, but God loves everyone. Every person, and Jesus is very clear about this in the Gospels when he says what his mission is. He says, I've come to seek and to save the religious, right? <laughs> no. I've come to seek and to save the moral. No. He says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He shows up and says, where are the sinners? That's where I'm going. That's who I'm looking for. Where are they? I'm here for them. The Bible is very clear. God does this because he is love. Now, why does he love? He can't help but love. He can't not love any more than he cannot be. It's who he is. It's his character. And it's an unqualified, unearned, undeserved love. The incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth into a dark world in a dark night in Bethlehem, drills home the message of grace, that no one is beyond God's grace. God comes and seeks us out. He comes to the darkness. And so whatever we're going through in life, sometimes we will tell ourselves, sometimes people say, I can't come to Christ. I can't be a Christian. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know what I feel. You don't know what I'm thinking. And God's message is, yes, I do. And I'm still coming because I love you. And I'm seeking you and I'm pursuing you and I'm wooing you and I love you. Our message of the gospel is a message of hope. It is not a message of judgment. Listen again to Jesus. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why he came. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've grown up in church, and um, I've heard a lot of different preachers and preaching over the many years. And I remember hearing people preach on the judgment of God so much that it was disturbing. And what was disturbed me the most is that sometimes they really seemed to enjoy it too much. There was a lot of anger and, and, and venom coming out when they began to talk about the judgment of God coming. I remember one religious leader was talking about God's judgment upon our nation. He began to list all the sins of other people, not his own sin, but the sins of other people. And God's judgment on certain groups of people that he called beyond hope. And he, he, he said, it's too late for this nation. 
You know, God's going to judge. And what disturbed me about the conversation, because I, I do believe God hates sin and he's going to judge sin, but what disturbed me is that this guy was smiling when he was saying it. It was almost as if he enjoyed the fact that God was going to get those other people and punish them. And I thought, this paints a horrible, false image of who God is. God is all-powerful, and God is holy, and God hates sin, and that's true. But God is not consumed with, that hate, with, with hate or with judgment or a desire to come and pursue and punish everybody. And that's an inaccurate picture. It's like he can't wipe to wipe out people. You know, it's almost as if God created the world in Genesis. Remember, we read each time he creates something, he says, this is good. Creates, this is good. This is good. This is good. And he comes along and he creates man. He goes, well, it's not good. I'm going to create a family unit, human beings for one another. And then he says, okay, this is good. And God created a world that's good. And man comes along and what did man do? He messed it up. Okay, and so this is kind of the message that I, that I would hear growing up is God was good. He created a perfect world, and he created human beings, and we, we messed it up. And he is not happy about this at all. And what made matters worse as a child is that the, the depiction of God was a reminder that God is always watching you all the time, everything you do all the time. Now, that would be good if the God who's watching us and we're being told is a God of love and compassion, like a loving father. But, but the judgmental, angry God watching uh, was a whole different matter. And I remember this hymn. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this hymn or not, but there's, a, there's an old hymn called There's an Eye Watching You. Now, really, really, it is. And let me just read some of the words. All along on the road to the soul's true abode, there's an eye watching you. Every step that you take, this great eye is awake. There's an eye watching you, watching you, watching you. Every day, mind the course you pursue. Watching you, watching you, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. Now, as a child, I can't tell you what this did to my crazy imagination. <laughs> because all I could picture was this massive, big, huge eye that's just looking everywhere, just... And then I came along years later, I watched Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and, and I don't even speak Elvish or understand Lord of the Rings. I have to get people to interpret. I remember that fiery eye in Lord of the Rings. Like, and it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is, this is horrible. This is terrible. God, we, God created a good world. We messed it up. He is ticked off about that. He's withdrawn to heaven. And he's recording every sin and writing everything. And one day he's coming back and he's not happy. And that's, that's kind of a false image of God that was portrayed. You know, it's like the, uh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Oh, but that's, a, that's another myth, isn't it? Uh, right. A little confusion here. But both are wrong about God. Totally wrong. It's no wonder that people were repulsed by religion when, when that is harped upon so much. The God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, according to Jesus, is a God who watches, who cares, who yearns for people to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He knows the great cost of sin to our soul. He knows the damage that it brings. It's judgment within itself because it separates us from being connected and being able to receive the love that God has for us. But the eye that watches us is that of a loving parent. 
who watches with delight his children and desire for the very best. It's the eye uh, that watches the little sparrow and cares even if a little sparrow falls down. And Jesus says, how much more does he care for you? Does he watch you? I love what Dallas Willard once said. We serve a happy God, he said. A God who is full, who is abundant, who is happy, who is joyful, who delights over his creation, who delights over his people, and who grieves over sin. So he makes a provision so that sin can be removed. It's true, God hates sin, and God is holy, but the gospel, the good news is that sin has been judged completely on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Let me put another word in there that helped me kind of grasp this. God made him who knew no sin to absorb our sin from us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that in him we may absorb his righteousness. This powerful exchange takes place because of God's intense love for us. He wants us to be a people of hope. In fact, I don't think we should preach judgment without weeping over people. I mean, yeah, there's a time to preach it. When Jesus looked over the people of Jerusalem, he wept over them. When Paul describes his, his own people who were rejecting Jesus and rejecting the gospel, he wept over them. Because we preach a message of hope. We have a message of hope. The second thing that this hope gives us is not just for the removal of sin and the grace that our life is not beyond hope, but God gives us hope for the present moment, for the struggles of life right now, the things we go through. I know that many Christians, when we, we come to Christ and we start out and, and it's pretty good, you know, and we're doing well, we're excited about, about the Lord, but sometimes along the journey, we may have started out well, but sometimes we get discouraged. We still find ourselves struggling over the same things, same sins or habits or hangups or weaknesses, and we think, man, by now, I should be better. I should be much better. I still have some of these same internal struggles going on. What's wrong with me? And we carry a lot of shame or discouragement and guilt over those struggles. And we look around and we think, man, everybody else seems to have it together, but I don't. What's wrong with me? You ever had those, those voices, those, those words, and, you know, kind of beating ourselves up over that? What happens is that we end up falling in one of two categories, one or two traps, it is, quietly giving up, just thinking, well, this doesn't work. And, and so many have done that. So many young people have left, you know, God left the church, and you may know somebody who just, just quit, just walked out. Or the other trap we can fall into is pretending, pretending everything's okay when it's not. John Lynch says that we put mask on, and we just put this mask on, and we wear this mask. It's a happy mask. It's a smiling mask, and we wear it when we're around other people. People say, how are you? And we say, fine, fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine, too. How are the kids? They're fine. The family's fine. The job's fine. The car's fine. My finances are fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We put the mask on, but inside we're going, it's not fine. It's not really fine. Underneath it, we're still struggling, we're still frustrated, maybe even angry while we're saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Now, I'm not suggesting that we walk around and regurgitate all of our problems everywhere we go. No, no, that wouldn't be cool. But there has to be places where we can be honest. There has to be groups where we can sit down and go with some friends in a place of safety, like a small group or recovery group, and go, 
you know, our prayer partner, we go, you know what, it's not fine, it's not great, I'm struggling. And we need to be honest about it. I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, who we just spent six months studying, and he's a pretty awesome guy, but he admits in, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he struggled. Because sometimes I find myself doing the things that I hate, I don't want to do, and sometimes I find that I can't do the things that I really want to do, and I'm still in the midst of this struggle. In Philippians, and I think Chris referred to this fact that he says, you know, it's not that I've arrived yet, I've not reached that point yet, but this is what I'm doing, forgetting what lies behind. I'm, I'm putting my heart for what God has for me ahead of changing me, of changing me into the character of Jesus, becoming like him. I think that sometimes as Christians, we find ourselves with this, give me this mental image, and, and I'm borrowing this from John Lynch. I want to give him credit, and I'll put the link to his own message uh, of this illustration on the website this week. But he says that sometimes as Christians, we find ourselves like we're standing here, and we're looking at this big pile of sins and struggles and failures and fears in front of us. And we go, this is a lot of stuff in my life. And we see God on the other side of that, looking across the sin between us and between him, and he's disappointed. It's just like, there's a lot of stuff going on here, and we feel alone. And so what happens, sometimes we think, well, I'm going to work hard, more Bible study, more, more this, more that. I'm going to work really hard and strive, and I'm going to get this stuff out of my life and out of my way so me and God can be close. But I want to tell you, that's completely unbiblical, completely unbiblical. To, to come back to this illustration, here we're standing here and we see all the stuff. And, we, and if we're real and we're honest, there's stuff, okay? Don't pretend there's not. Take that mask off, you know? There's struggles when, when every person goes through or fears or hang-ups or pitfalls that we find. And we find ourselves struggling and God on the other side. But the biblical picture, the message of hope the reality of Emmanuel is it's not me over here struggling to get rid of this stuff, struggling to try to please God, and Jesus is over there with all of this stuff in between us, but it's Jesus standing right beside me with his arm around me, his delight in me, his love upon me, and he looks at me, he looks at you, and he says, I love you. And nothing will ever change that. I'm with you, and nothing will ever change that. As, as Paul wrote, what can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He goes, no, he continues, no. And all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation, pretty wide, pretty broad, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You name it, nothing. He says, Jesus stands beside you because I love you. But then we, we look, I mean, we look at him for a minute, we go, this is great, but then we look at the stuff. And then he looks at the stuff and he's honest. He goes, there is a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Let's work on it together. You can't do it alone. I'm with you. You can't tackle this by yourself. We'll work on it together. 
You cooperate, I provide the strength. We partner in this adventure. That's, the, that's called sanctification in the Bible. It's the process of being changed into the likeness and the image of Jesus. It's a journey we go on. I love the fact that when we come to Christ, our sins are completely forgiven. But then as we journey with Christ, he begins to change our character, our behavior, our attitude, our mind, our, our way of treating other people. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging that picture that I'm not alone trying to handle my stuff. Anybody ever tried that before? <laughs> Have? Doesn't work. Can't do it. Jesus says, I'm here. Emmanuel. Have hope. We'll, we'll tackle this together. The third area that I want to mention this morning is that we have a future hope. We not only have the hope that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. He forgave our sin and it's settled. It's done. And we also have the promise that he is with us now and will never leave us, never forsake us. But he also promises his return and the restoration of his kingdom. He will finish the work that he has started and he will make all things new. The final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, kind of tells us how things will end up. And it's, it's, it's a <laughs> terrifying and wonderful book, if you ever read it, mystifying book. But one of the things... <clears throat> that we see in, in it toward the end is that Satan and evil is defeated and God restores his kingdom. Everything opposing his kingdom is wiped out and God restores his kingdom. And he says in the next to last book, uh, chapter in the Bible, uh, Revelation 21, verse 5, and the one who sits on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Say it with me. Behold, I make all things new. What does all things include? Everything. That's a lot to look forward to. That's why the book of Titus calls the return of Christ the blessed hope. He says this, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see the inner work that's taking place that Jesus talks, or he talks about Jesus doing here, forming us into Christ's likeness, changing us. First John verse three, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved ones, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And Paul reminds us what God starts, he finishes. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. This points to the inner work that he is doing. But he's pointing toward a day when that work's going to be completed. Well, we're going to be completely transformed by being into his presence. Our inner struggles will be over. There'll be liberation from hurts, hang-ups, habits, all the stuff that we deal with in life. And the message of the Bible is that God will restore all things. And Dallas Willard kind of was talking about this one time. He says, let me explain it this way. Restoring all things means he makes it like the fall never happened. Sit with that a moment. That's what full restoration means. That, that's what restoring to original intention means. It's like brand new. Imagine what that will be like. 
That helps me enduring difficulties now, enduring struggles, enduring suffering now to know that there's going to be a day when all things will be restored. A new heaven, a new earth, everything. I mean, your mind, imagination, your dream can go, your dreaming can go wild imagining what, what a pristine earth would be like. Imagine the earth before the fall. Imagine exploring the beauty of God throughout the universe forever and ever. Imagine being changed within, not carrying the weight of the struggles that we go through. It occurred to me that each time that we celebrate communion, we're actually pointing to these three realities that we've talked about this morning. For everyone, there is hope. No one is beyond hope because Christ has died and there's forgiveness of sin. We have assurance of God's presence now, the presence of Jesus now in life because Christ has risen and he lives with us and among us. And there's hope for the future because he is coming again. And we proclaim that. I I hope and pray that as we partake of communion, if you haven't already and you do today or whenever you do partake of communion, that you'll remember the hope that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. We are people of hope. So let's close in prayer, and we're going to take a moment and, uh, and go through our, our routine of receiving communion, if you haven't already, but just spending a few moments with, with God. If you will, go ahead and just stand up with me. Put your stuff down. Just kind of get in a position before God of receiving. You may have specific needs. That you-